Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Risky Behavior, where no subject is off limits. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy a beverage with us as we explore controversial issues and answer your health and wellness-related concerns, ranging from nutrition and exercise to sex and prescription drugs. I'm here with co-host Dr. Shetha Chakraborty, who's a national media risk expert, as seen on CNN, the BBC, Fox News, and more. But don't just think this hour is all science as usual. After four seasons as a regular guest and food scientist on The Dr. Oz Show, Dr. Taylor Wallace, who the Huffington Post calls the nation's premier food and nutrition guru, will help me loosen lips and spill tea with special guests that you won't want to miss. So let's jump right into our guest this week, who's a dear friend. She also happens to be the president of IGES, the Institute for Global Environmental Strategies. And she's been involved in her career, a long career in science and communications. And she's driven with by her love for nature. That's truly where this is all coming from. Exactly. So why don't you start us off and tell us exactly what IGES is and okay. what you all do? Well, thanks. Um, and thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. And um, so the Institute for Global Environmental Strategies is a small nonprofit in Arlington, Virginia. And what we do is we help to promote knowledge about the planet and how we can better understand the changing planet by primarily using space technologies. So we work with, we're very lucky um, since I founded IGES 25 years ago, we've worked primarily with NASA, NOAA, the National Science Foundation and others. And so NASA is our largest client and, and um, you know, they, there are a number of satellites that look at the earth, all aspects of the earth. And then we try to take that information, get it into classrooms, help people better understand the science, and more importantly, um, under, try to understand how it helps U.S. business. So we had a friend of yours on the show, episode five for listeners who want to go back and hear more, <laughs> yeah. Bill Clanky. Bill Clanky on my board. Yes. Great guy. He's on, he's on Nancy's board, and he told us so much about NASA. Give us... You know, I don't think listeners will make the connection between NASA automatically, NOAA, and conservation. Mm -hmm. How do these things kind of, how does, how does this landscape pan out? Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you know, NASA has a number of satellites that circulate the Earth all the time, and, and some of them are geostationary, just look at special spots, but they build the, the weather satellites, and then, of course, they transfer them to NOAA, and NOAA operates the weather satellites that, that help us under, better understand extreme, you know, not only weather events, but long-term climate implications and all of that. But NASA is really the premier science agency um, in looking at um, carbon in the atmosphere. We were just talking before the show started about deforestation, but looking at using the Landsat programs and other satellites um, that can can look over time at forests and now using artificial intelligence uh, start to determine where there might be fires, where there might be illegal logging. I mean, we're getting so good at our uh, techniques that um, we can we can determine where there are a number of things. That's so cool because you know Donald Trump thinks NASA is literally just space force, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Without realizing the critical function that it plays for yeah. really just examining our terrestrial Earth. Well, right. and it's a good example of how a technology can really help us predict the future, right? Because we can see the amount of deforestation, we can see the amount of greenhouse gas buildup, and so. You know, when scientists make those predictions, you know, that we're going to have to change things in the next 10 years, yeah. I don't think people realize it's based on really hard data that right. come out of these really 
like credible scientific agencies. And Nancy, having you here is such a delight. I'd love to get your views on what have you seen change? You have been working in this space for 25 years plus, right? Yeah. And so what have you seen in the ways of conservation? Many of our listeners give us regular feedback that they're scared that we're losing, we are losing forests, we're losing plant life, all of that, but also species, Mm -hmm. right? The dire predictions is that we're going to be losing up to a billion, something like that. Well, what are the numbers? Yeah. Well, um, Let me just back up a little bit, because I think a really good example of uh, space technologies and data science um, really has come out of what's happened in Australia recently and the um, the bushfires that happened there, you know, where we had 18 million hectares, 44 million acres, 28 people died, 3000 homes and over a billion animals lost. Yeah, I saw on Facebook the kangaroos that they were all trying to save. It was so sad. It, It is so sad. But one of the things that has come out of that is looking at why wasn't this predicted? Why didn't we recognize that the characteristics were there that would lead to these bushfires? And what they found is that many of the models weren't identifying something like that, some a fire of that magnitude or a bushfire in that magnitude take place for another 80 years, you know? And so I think what's come out of that is really looking at our models and saying, are they matching where we are right now, the science? And so um, I, I think that, you know, we, we have observational technologies, we have a lot of data. It's how we use that data to make the best decisions and to give us the best information and forecasting. Okay. No, so that's fascinating. Now, what does that mean for future predictions? So you're saying that we need to revamp some of this to be able to better predict potential outcomes? Right. I think we have to do a better job at investing in forecasting. All kind eco eco forecasting, you know, our weather forecasting is great. Our climate forecasting is getting much better. Right. But I believe that, you know, we have tons of data. Are we really using it? And so that's where AI, the machine learning comes in to help us better, you know, to train computers, to pick up on things, to alert um, our policymakers and our leadership and government that, look, these are going to be the problems. If you're running a business, could you imagine running a business right now and having to deal with the kinds of temperatures that we're dealing with? Right. The kinds of air quality we're going to have. How do you build something in China when the air quality is so bad? Well, and I was yeah. even, you know, on um, the news the other day, I, I was looking at imaging of algae blooms mm-hmm. because in the Gulf, you know, fertilizer runoff from the Mississippi has really caused these intense algae blooms that happen almost seasonally now. And we can monitor that um, through this satellite imaging. Mm-hmm. So what you what everything you're referring to is so critical in preserving. Right. Ultimately, mm-hmm. this is the point mm-hmm. is to preserve what we already have. But then also, is it possible to even do that now with everything, all the changes you've witnessed through your career, just in terms of the trends of a warming planet? increased deforestation, all yes. of these. I believe I, I believe we're doing it. I think we can do it better. And I think that as awful as, you know, the, and the bushfires are awful, I think the, the, the piece that came out on Monday about the fact that, look, the models weren't even addressing a situation like this for another 40 years, right. or 80 years, rather, 80 years. Yeah. That should be a message to the, sci- the science community. And as this um, 
as they were saying, there's a crisis in science right, right. now. And it's not just a crisis for the planet. It's a crisis for science because we've got to make sure it works for us. Well, and while the U.S. Department of Agriculture continues to hide data on climate change, we should be investing in these types of technologies to be able to identify the problem before it happens. Right. And, you know, I think one of the big trends we're seeing as well is there's a lot of money being invested in commercial companies that are also going to be providing high resolution data, you know, synthetic aperture radar, all of those kinds of new instrumentations or new capabilities that it's not going to just be the government programs anymore, although the government programs are really kind of like, you know how it is when you start using a technology or a, a data set or whatever, you continue to use it. I think it's going to be hard to do a switch, but and especially if companies can't show that they're going to be in right. the business for the long term. But there is an incredible investment being made right now in Earth observations technologies. There's even more of an investment and I think an opportunity in the artificial intelligence, you know, or machine learning, how, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's interesting, you know, I, I grew up in a small town outside of Pittsburgh. And I was thinking about in preparation for the show when I was a kid, like, you know, four years old, the very first house we had in, was in a place called Duquesne, Pennsylvania. Like most houses outside of Pittsburgh, you have your house and overlooks a steel mill. And, um, and I remember as a kid, I was, I would be afraid to go outside because all the smoke plumes would come up, you know, from yep. the mills and they would make these big figures in the sky. And I always thought they were monsters. <laughs> and in some respects, I they was were. right. They were <laughs> monsters yeah. and they're putting some bad stuff into the air yeah. we breathe. And, you know, I think that's where I first started think, you know, I think, of that is like my first connection to wanting to understand what's going on or understanding that, you know, is it a monster? Is it not a monster? How do we change? Because also Pennsylvania is one of the most beautiful as somebody who grew up in New Jersey and went to Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. So I would drive from New York, New Jersey to Pittsburgh yeah. every, you know, every few weeks. And that drive, especially through the fall, is just so stunning. It is so pretty. So it's yeah. a stark contrast when you see the beauty that is nature, that is mm-hmm. Allegheny, right? Is the yeah. river. The and, Allegheny, the three. Yeah, rivers, and just, the right. And the Allegheny right. the Ohio. And um, just how... And the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yeah. <laughs> I was there doing when they won the Super Bowl. Yeah, baby. That's like the most sporty thing I think I've ever said on the show. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> like, definitely the most sporty thing you've ever... I'm surprised you. you knew who the Pittsburgh Steelers were. Yeah. <laughs> it's because I happened to be there in 2005 when they won. And it was a big deal. Um, no, but so that's dark contrast, right? The beauty yeah. that is nature and then seeing... you can Most of what's going on in terms of pollution, in terms of destroying the natural environment, is naked to the or invisible to the naked eye, right? So when you actually see it, like you just described, that contrast is jarring. Well, there's a lot of conflict, right? I mean, the the fact that um, that Pittsburgh, I mean not Pittsburgh, but Pennsylvania is such a beautiful state, and yet it's a state that there's a lot of fracking going on right now. You know, it has not. A great economy, so people look for business. West Virginia is the same way with the um, with the coal. Um, so I think I think what I see right now is that you know there's still this challenge of how do you balance environment with economy. Right. That's something we haven't quite found. There was a big uproar this week that uh, the World Bank was putting money into into um, African countries where they were, you know, supporting the oil and gas business. Right. right. That's not cool. It's just, Conservation, right? Yeah. The mm-hmm. idea is that we want to preserve the natural environment as much as possible. Is there any way to kind of 
turn it around? Can we get back some of what well, we yeah, lost? The, the, the conference on biodiversity under the, the, the UN is certainly trying to, you know, help us better understand um, and, and help us create more parks and protected areas around the world mm -hmm. so that we can protect biodiversity. So not just, and not just, you know, terrestrial, but also marine. Right. And so there are lots of efforts underway that will help us do that. Um, and part of the big problem we have is a migrating species. Right. So we have to make sure that we can begin to work with all of these parks and have connectivity between them right. so those migrating species have a place to go. Can, I, can we monitor that using technology, migrating species? Are we oh. that... Technologically oh, yeah. advanced. I mean, you can use high resolution data to see the wildebeest migrations in Africa, for example. Oh, That's wow. That's really cool. I had no and, clue. And um, in fact, in, I, I have an image I can send to you that's really wonderful. It's a high resolution image of the wildebeest. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. That's really, really neat. From them. Can I say something controversial? Go for <laughs> it. Since we're talking about you. love and nature and all of it. <laughs> okay, can we just let some of these things go? So I remember. Um, a few years back, I was at a conference and I'm not going to say her name, but she's a scientist with Nation National Natural Resources Defense Fund, mm -hmm. NRDC. And she's known as kind of like the fish lady. Mm -hmm. And um, she said at this con, it was a conservation meeting. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know what? We just need to let some of these species go. And everybody in the room was shocked. That somebody who is all about it's a conservation conference ideas. How do we mitigate against? How do we preserve? And how do we uh, reduce the amount of harm that's being done to the natural and the uh, marine environment? And she was like, honestly, the amount of money we're putting into trying to protect some species is resulting in overall harm across the board. So we need to recognize that we just need to let some of them go. And we need to turn our attention to the ones that we can actually, through investment and resources, save. Right. Mm -hmm. And so as much as we love the polar bears, we, you know, it's somebody's pet project ultimately, or there's groups devoted to it. But ultimately, some of them, we just have to accept that it might not be worth our while. And and with the fish, genetically modified fish, that's when she brought that up. And she said, if we are not going to be able to save salmon, because if we think about the extinction rate for right. wild mm -hmm. salmon, let's let, just accept that. And let's actually yeah. look at how we can produce gen genetically modified salmon. That's well, at odds who, with the conservation who, community. Who, no? makes, who makes that choice? And if you're an indigenous people, a person, and you have spent your life fishing for certain species on your, on your, you know, air in your area, who should make that choice for you? Right. You know, and especially if you don't have any control over the fact over, over what has happened to those species. So I think it's more of a question of who comes up with that holistic look at, OK, if we're going to save the planet, how do we do it? What's our strategy? What's our plan? And what falls by the wayside? Right. I mean, that's kind of scary. Well, it's really it's really fascinating, the technology that we have you know, the surveillance technology that you're describing mm -hmm. when it comes to monitoring, um, you know, different species or whether it's um, forest fires or deforestation or mm -hmm. carbon dioxide levels. And we still don't get our own supply chains right. I mean, you know, it, it's yeah. also these communities are isolated and we have all this technology that is absent in so many places throughout the world. It's almost sad. Yeah. I, I think that 
in, in just talking though, this is a really good example of kind of where I didn't want the discussion to go <laughs> because when it comes to nature, when it comes to the beauty of our planet, when it comes to conservation, we tend to talk about the negative and not the positive. And I really think we need to turn the conversation around and think about not what's wrong with nature. Clearly we have to address that but we have to remind ourselves why we love it. Okay, I appreciate that so much, Nancy. Yeah, yeah. well, as a behavioral (laughs) scientist, I would hope so. And it's true because also the climate change issue um, that I'm I'm addressing all the time with audiences that are resistant and they're resistant to changing their behaviors and adapting and mitigating because so much of the narrative is the negative Mm -hmm. without painting a picture of, okay, we don't have to talk about how painful it's gonna be going forward and the restrictions we're going to have on our lifestyles, Mm -hmm. what we need to say is we need to look forward to a future that is cleaner. Mm -hmm. Imagine being outside and being able to breathe in air and not being worried if you're, how long your children are on the playground, paint a picture that is healthier and just more welcoming to our species. I mean, all of of the research shows that, you know, when you, when you talk more in a positive, positive, with positive messaging, um, the the mess it's it, there's a higher probability the message will be received and of course what am I telling you you're a behavioral <laughs> scientist no but thank you for reinforcing that yeah. that's exactly yeah. right and so I often go back and I think about the work that I that I've done with the International Union for the Conservation of Nature where I was involved um, in the leadership position with their Commission on Education and Communication and we came up with this whole program about you know themes like it's love not loss right and really trying to touch people emotionally on conservation or nature rather than through science because you know sometimes science people just shut down and but if i can talk to you about like when you were you know what's your favorite experience in nature well i tell you one of my favorite experiences (laughs) keep it pg (laughs) and and this kind of adds to what you're saying because right it's all about education particularly for the younger generations um i remember my AP biology teacher, Mr. Childs in high school, um, was all about conservation. And at the time, I kind of really took it for granted because I was a high school kid. And I thought about it the last time I was back in Kentucky because he used to hand out these little pine trees like during conservation month. And, you know, you could take them and go plant them and stuff like that. And I drove by my old house. My parents no longer um, live in, in the house I grew up in, but I drove by and, you know, now this pine tree is like, you know, Aww. like literally like 200 feet tall. <laughs> I've given away my age here, but it's, like, you know, I kind of look back and I'm like, that's a pretty like cool experience. And I think if, you know, we can instill something like that early on in kids, I mean, yeah. every one of us, if we just do a little bit, we can make a really large impact. Yeah. One of the things that we did when, um, with the IUCN, the commission, was that we started to ask people, when did you fall in love with nature? Or how did you fall in love with nature? And invariably, people always talked about, what well, was my grandfather. It was my AP biology teacher. Or, you know, I remember when my dad, you know, I was one of six kids and he'd like pack us up all in the car. We'd make sandwiches, put them in a cooler. And he'd take us to Keystone's, you know, Keystone Park because that's what yeah. you did with six kids. And, uh, you know, we just loved hanging out at the lake and running around and looking for stuff and, you know. So I think you're very on point with being positive about it, presenting it in that way, getting people excited, connecting people back to the nostalgic memories and thinking about the future and yeah. them wanting to recreate that for their family. 
Do you see the conservation community doing that? Because I would say that you're really unique in terms of how you present this. The other, I mean, the other groups that work in this space tend to really use fear mongering and really, I mean, the commercials on TV, like looking at your favorite stuffed animal in real life, mm-hmm. <laughs> like no longer being part of the future for your future children. How do you feel about the rest of the community and how they present it? Well, I think like anything, it takes time. And I think most of the, the space is occupied by scientists, right? And scientists aren't comfortable right we're not talking we're not about the most, emotional right emotional <laughs> topics well they're not comfortable talking period and <laughs> yeah, we should be them, yeah yeah so when you start saying like oh love you know it's about love not loss or it's nature for all they're like what are you talking about right but i will tell you that i think what we see happening at least with the international union with the conservation of nature as we're leading up to our world conservation congress which is going to happen in june and you know all the major players are going to be there you know whether conservation international national geographic and others um you are seeing a trend you are seeing a trend to positive messaging because we are beginning to realize that you know you can do the best job ever delivering the science but if it's not touching you if you're not feeling connected to that polar bear, or if you're not mm-hmm. feeling connected to Denali Park, then it doesn't matter. The science is not going to sink in. Right. You're not going to right. embrace it. Don't we need to prioritize, though? Because ultimately, we do have limited resources, time, personnel, money, all of it, attention. Right. So how do we begin to, and you're right, who determines that? Because ultimately, it's not it's not distributed fairly. We know this. We know that those most vulnerable are suffering immediately the impacts of climate change more so than those that are much further removed who are making the decisions that hurt those vulnerable communities, especially indigenous peoples that that have set up communities along the coast. And they're seeing it firsthand more than other communities that maybe have figured out much more infrastructure to like live. So in that sense, how do we, taking all of that the morals and ethics into account. How do we think about prioritizing who and what we can actually do something for? Well, I I think that that's where we look to organizations like the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the UN Environment Program, the UN Development Program, and others, because as much as they've had leadership roles, their leadership roles are more important now than ever. Mm -hmm. And we have the technology to hear from more people than we ever had. And and as we move forward, I think those organizations kind of have to recast themselves and come up with ways that they can be more efficient, can be more engaging (laughs) and really kind of. Yeah, I think we're more likely to curb climate change before that happens. (laughs) But (laughs) I just met I just met (laughs) Akim Steiner, who is the head of UNDP. He's great. They just launched Mission 1.5 in New York City which is their game. It's actually a game. So it's really everything you're saying, right? Using technology to really get to people in a way that is is on target with how people interact now. So everyone's on their phone. Everyone's playing Candy Crush. It blew my mind when I found out the amount of people, like gaming industry has just blown up. And then it doesn't matter what age range you are. You probably are kind of fiddling around with the game on your phone. I personally don't. Do you? No, but I tell you what, this little thing keeps popping up on my phone where there's like, you know, a little guy and you can either sizzle him with lava or you can 
put the water in and you have to like save him by pulling the little like plug (laughs) up. And I never can save that asshole. I always burn him up and I just hate it. (laughs) Okay, our producer is shaking his head. I also feel like, I also feel like Taylor kind of enjoys him getting (laughs) thrown into water. No, I really want to save him one time and I never (laughs) (laughs) So, um, okay, so, but this, this is how people now engage. Right. This is how you get through to people. It's quick. It's immediate. We know TikTok is blowing up. People have three to 10 seconds maximum attention. So if you can, if the UN is getting creative like that and they've actually um, collaborated now with tech companies, they've created a game that forces, that that gamifies climate change, that gamifies yeah. um, conservation. Well, we're doing, we're doing observations, citizen science observations using phones all the time, whether it's a bird counting or at IGES, we work on a pro- program called Globe Observer for NASA where students, teachers, you can you can look at, you can go out and look for a mosquito larvae and determine, you know, what types of larvae are available or, or present rather, it might be Zika, those kinds of things. And then you can help with, with mitigating that in your community. So that's a really big deal. And again, it's all made possible through cell phones. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so let's take advantage. I like how positive you are about the commercial space and the opportunities, the science and tech advances here, mm. we're coming up to a whole new era of conservation. We don't need to look at it in a negative way. We can actually talk about a future that is even better than anything we've experienced in the past. So I think for our listeners, you know, that are tuning into this episode, what can we all do? So, you know, I'm busy, I'm at work, you know, yeah. you know, I know to recycle. What can I do? What are some small steps I can take to help the environment. Well, you know what I would do? I would do something for you. I would get out in nature. I would go for a hike. I would reconnect with nature so that, you know, it makes more sense to not use a straw. So it makes more sense not to go and buy, you know, anything that's in, you know, one use plastic or to get rid of those terrible, terrible garbage bags. (laughs) Not garbage, but the, the, the store. One use plastic bags. No, yeah. no, you're not yeah. one of those naturalists that run around naked at the campground, right? <laughs> Depends what campground. But depends how much wine. <laughs> as, as I would say, though, but it, it's all about you as an individual. Once you connect or reconnect with nature, you're going to want to do a lot of things. You know, you're going to want to talk to classrooms about being more protective of the planet. And that's that's all I would say is just make sure that, you know, you keep nature as part of you. And I think you ended on a wonderful note. So that's all for today. That's a wrap for today. Have ideas for the show? Tweet us at Dr. Taylor Wallace. That's D-R-T-A-Y-L-O-R-W-A-L-L-A-C-E. And at Shetha C. That's S-W-E-T-A-C. Thank you for tuning in to Risky Behavior. Until next time.